Welcome to Genius Leadership Podcast, where we discuss how to overcome everything as a leader. I'm your host, Anna Liebel, a mind shifter, helping male leaders in tech get out of the firefighting mode, become the proactive leaders they want to be, and enjoy the ride as they go. Join me every week for honest, insightful conversations with corporate, entrepreneurial, and academic leaders. We discuss their roller coaster ride of leading from their zone of genius and when they don't. If you find this show valuable, please subscribe and share it so that more of us can live a healthier and happier life. Now, let's get into the episode. Hey, Genius Leaders. Welcome to a, an episode which will be an epic conversation with Nick Johnson. And I'm so happy that you get to hear this uh, conversation and this story because Nick has gone through a lot of things and he is so graceful to share so openly and vulnerably about different parts of his story that I bet you will relate to it and you'll get out smarter, more intelligent, more open to face any things that go come your way and also to support people around you in a better way, to be more present, to show up more fully as you and really create a better world around you and uh, after you. So with Nick, we're talking about his journey of uh, being an expert executive to going on a big addiction and health issues and then hitting that rock bottom and pushing himself off that, getting onto the surface and then helping others to do the same. I will not go into the details what we're talking about. You can read those couple of bullet points in the show notes. But I do want to emphasize that this is a conversation, which is a little bit longer one, but it is, it is for a reason. I didn't want to just quickly slide through the, the topics that Nick has experience in and, and is ready to share about. So without further ado, listen in and to learn more about Nick and his journey, please read his book, Executive Loneliness, The Five Pathways to Overcoming Isolation, Stress, Anxiety and Depression in the Modern Business World. I've read it, I loved it, and I could relate to so many things that he shared uh, of his own journey and people who shared his their stories in his book as well. So grab the your copy in, via the link in the show notes and enjoy and keep getting better. Love you and see you on the other side. Nick, warmest welcome to the Genius Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much, Anna. It's a pleasure to be here. Again, it's another example of being uh, or leveraging the uh, globalization that we have and the opportunities that communication technology is providing for us. I'm in Iceland, you are in Thailand, usually you're based in Singapore. And uh, this is just the, the beautiful example of how we can learn from each other through this connection. And I know that you are into the connection in person and we'll be talking about that today, but I just really want to emphasize how grateful I am that um, you found some time in your evening to tune in and have a conversation. Absolutely. No, I'm very happy to be with you here from Thailand. Indeed, I'm normally based in Singapore, but as the triathlon season is coming up, it's pre-season training now, and I actually checked into an athlete training camp here in Thailand, so I'm working. And again, thanks to the technology, right? I'm working from here, but I have a training session in the morning and one at night, so I'm also feeling great, getting all the exercise I, I can get, get out in the nature, meeting people, socializing, and then working on virtually between that. Perfect. We'll get into your uh, training as well very soon in the conversation, but I just would like to start with the previous version, let's say, of, of Nick, the one that you describe so openly and vulnerably, both in, in your conversations when you go 
in a public speaker on stage or on radio and so on, uh, also in your book, which I will link in the show notes that people can get and, and, and dive into. So tell us about that version of Nick, who to me seemed lost and lonely. And correct me if that's anyhow wrong. No, that, I'm very happy to share that experience, Anna, because hopefully if I share it, hopefully uh, some people may not go through exactly the same journey. We all have our ups and downs and life is a roller coaster. But if we can keep it not to hit the rock bottom, which is what I did, then it, 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 it would be a better life. So what happened a few years ago, I felt indeed quite lost in the workplace. I didn't have a connection there. I also was not in a very good space mentally. Myself, I suddenly stopped exercising and instead I started to go to the bar, meeting friends after work. And that was my way to wind down. And it's quite common in, in the expat culture that you meet at the bar afterwards and you have a few drinks. But what I didn't realize is that that became basically a bad habit. And it's a fine line between when a bad habit turns into an addiction. And that's what happened in my play, place then when I resigned from a job, found myself in a divorce lost my fitness and exercise. So all these episodes happened in one go for me. And perhaps also it was a bit of a 40 years crisis. Again, we have all these ups and downs. And I was not ready for this. I had lived a life where things were looking up and I didn't know how to deal with it. And what I did also was I didn't talk to anyone about it. I tried to deal with it myself. And with that, it was a slow, slow downward spiral from 2015 until 2018 when I hit rock bottom. You you said uh, I uh, want to make a small remark here on the, or a question regarding this resigning from your job in your book you describe that that you had two situations when you as an expert where actually like, you lost your job right you you somehow became not necessary for the company at the moment and that was the reason for you or the fear that that nurtured was the reason why you resigned. So it was all good at the company, but you were so overwhelmed and, and anxious about being, uh, being neglected yet another time that you couldn't handle it anymore and you resigned. So can you tell us a bit more about the experience? And now from the version of Nick 2023, what was it a good decision for you? Would you do, have done anything differently with that decision of resignation? Yes, indeed. Having been laid off twice when uh, a company the second time went through a merger and acquisition and I thought I was safe, I thought I did well. And we have seen this recently in news also. People are so surprised, suddenly they just laid off, right? And that is what happens in the corporate world. But I, just like everyone else, I was so surprised and it really hit me. I was not ready for that. And that anxiety that came with that and the depression that I hit after that because I sort of lost all my confidence. I, I lost my identity. I didn't know how to explain this to my friends, family, let alone my wife. I remember I did, was in complete shock myself. And, and then when I was in a new workplace, I was so anxious again. You know, I, just the fact that you start a job with a probation, that already put me under a lot of stress. And I can remember this job had a six months probation. Normally it's two or three months. This had six months. And now it was, you know, worrying the whole time over the six months. Once the probation was over, you know, I still was looking for every single fault I possibly could do. I was worrying about everything and just waiting for that moment to be terminated again. So that indeed was the reason why 
I thought that better I take charge of this. So I wrote my resignation letter. I didn't hand it in right away. It was sitting basically safe, password protected. But when I had some episodes going against me, when I thought, well, maybe this would be a reason for them to terminate me, that's when I decided to terminate my, my hand in my termination to the company. And looking at it now, was it a good decision for you? Was that the part of that rock bottom that helps you to get something under your feet and start going back to the surface? Or would you have done something differently? So that was basically the start of, of my crash. And then uh, it was a three-year crash after that. Uh, if you ask me now, I, I'm still at this moment. It's been such a, an amazing recovery journey. But it's almost would be crazy of me to say, yes, I, uh, it was the right decision to do. But, you know, it's been a wonderful journey to really patch back my life together. But to come so close to giving up, to actually losing your own life, is not something that I wish to, to do again. Uh, but sometimes that's what we need. We need to be so hurt, so, so badly injured to really appreciate what we have and come back and I basically call myself, you know, it's Nick 2.0 now. It's a completely different Nick. I live with complete different values and purpose in life. So in that aspect, I'm very, very glad that I found the, the recovery journey. You say about the uh, this that sometimes it's necessary to harm ourselves or uh, not, not, not harm ourselves, but get to this level of misery and uh, sometimes physical injury or anything like this. And I've covered it a couple of times on the podcast that I have some clients who say it sometimes that I almost wish some, sometimes to drive into the truck in, in front of me to get into the reanimation and then start all over again and have to build myself up again. And for me, it, it's painful to hurt it, to hear it, that people are so afraid of starting all over again without hitting the truck. So this is what you're working with and we'll be getting into that. And I really want to emphasize how important it is to, to hear the stories like yours, Nick, so that people can understand that, yes, that was your part of your journey to hit that rock bottom. And as you say, say in the book that you, you just truly believe that you were slowly dying or quite quickly dying, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I hope that you can give us a couple of examples of stories where people manage to turn their lives around without uh, sabotaging themselves so badly and so hard. Sure. So, and I mean, if being now in the, in the recovery space, I am, I'm meeting uh, people every day in the recovery and meetings. And, you know, I'm also a volunteer at rehabs and uh, for various organizations, including the Samaritan suicide hotline and so on. So I meet people who are in recovery, people are supporting with recovery volunteers and so on. And, uh, all the time as well and of course there can be uh, you know other journeys where people don't fall as low but it's always something it is perhaps a loss of a job a divorce cancer or some other kind of sickness or perhaps someone who lost the temper and ended up in jail or someone who you know got angry and pushed someone or punched someone and was taken by the police and that was not the normal behavior it seems like it's always something. It's very, very rare you would find someone going through a complete transformation just without no nothing have happened. This is a very interesting thought to uh, to consider or this observation of yours with all your experience of hearing these different stories, that there has to be this turning point that has to be very clear. It's not like, oh, yeah, just someday I just woke up and I felt hangover and I was like, 
no, I don't want to feel like that anymore. And then you just change. So it has to be something that shakes the ground under you and really pulls the rug from under your feet. That's what you're saying. Well, it also has to be something that you want, right? You have to be ready for it. Um, I lived in Sweden and grew up in Sweden. And uh, I was caught during driving in the car when I was around 20 or 21 years of age. And I remember then I had to go and see some psychologists. I had to have, uh, uh, I also had to go to court. I almost got jailed for this, but because I had never done a crime before, I got basically a warning and, and some other things. But at that stage, you know, when I went to see the psychologist and they were questioning, you know, was I an alcoholic and so on. The psychologist said, there's nothing wrong with you, Nick. Uh, you might, you must just have had a bad night. And they basically, psychologists refused to see me. Uh, they, they basically said, what the court has given here that you should come and see me would be a waste of your time and my time. <laughs> That's what was to happen then. So I was not ready. I was not, I did everything as you do. You know, you cover it up. If you have an addiction, you have a problem, we do everything as human beings to uh, look good and we cover that up. And, and I was very good at that, like an actor in that sense. And maybe it had not become a huge problem or addiction and yet. But that you know, being caught for drink driving when you're 20 years of age—that's a sign that something perhaps is not quite right. Yeah, that's also an interesting point that we need to be ready for the change. And there could be could be some smacks in the face for ourselves before, but they just become uh, drag us further deeper into that water, closer to the rock bottom. So it is a part of the formula in a way that it has there has to be some maturity and the. I like how many people say that the the pain of change should become smaller than the pain of staying the same for the change to happen. And it sounds like that's what you have hit there at the age of, what was it, 42, 43? 42, 43, yeah, when I uh, came into recovery. So let's let's talk about that that's, that period. You You had health problems, right? The the part that was very surprising for me was the the swelling that your ankle at some point just got swollen without any injury or so. And you mentioned in the book that it came from the psychological state or mental state of yours. Can you tell us about that period of your life or that episode in particular? Yeah, I remember that this was, you know, uh, as I was going down the last few months at this stage, I had become a daily drinker. I needed to have that morning drink to calm my nerves. I was in perfect normal shape working, you know, working hours and so on. But I had to go out in the morning for a walk, getting some alcohol or, or taking some medi- medications at least to calm my nerves to work. Um, but when you then, you know, you want to discipline yourself. And before I used to be able to stop drinking for three, four weeks because I knew, OK, I'm going to have a marathon or something or, or, or go for a run. And then I would discipline myself and I just wouldn't drink. But at this instance, it had gone as far that I couldn't take that break because then my 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 nerves would be so shaky. And that is a very scary place to be at. And it, in the end, I just thought, well, there's nothing I can do. And so I basically gave up to the addiction in that sense. I just thought, well, in order to cope with that's what I have to do, then that's what I do now. But something inside me told me that one day I, I need to go into recovery. I need to seek help. But I was terrified and scared. So I remember at that stage, my new wife, I was just getting remarried and um, she's, I told her what was going on and we still traveled out of Singapore at the time, going to see some doctors in other countries, getting blood tests and so on. And that was 
what gave me even more anxiety because of the doctors panicked when they saw the results, you know, they thought they wanted to impatient me right away. And I ran away. I, I got scared. And, and that is when the anxiety then, uh, when I was, remember lying in bed, you know, looking at my foot getting swollen. That was just because I had so much pain and anxiety inside me and the worry that, uh, and I couldn't really express myself either. That that's how the psychosomatic illness and start to show up in, in swelling on my foot. And it really became like double the size of a normal foot. That's interesting when maybe the body can't hold the pain anymore. So it kind of makes itself bigger as to increase the capacity <laughs> to fit in what you're bottling up. Is the, the mental and the physical co connection is just so powerful and uh, it never ceases to amaze me how our body can really tell us what's going on with us. You mentioned your new wife and then you, you shared with her what's going on. Explain why that happened. Why did you suddenly have this person with whom you, you felt okay to, to, to share what was going on with you? What, what made it possible? At that stage, I had done everything I could to clean up my act, which is sort of a sign of what people have when they are suicidal also, that perhaps you write, you know, a testimonial, uh, the, the last will and all these kind of things, the testament. And uh, that's what I've done. And I've written down all my bank details and accounts. I sent it to my parents. I sent it to my ex-wife, my son, and And so, so I felt in that aspect that, you know, I done everything I could. I signed up for life insurance, medical insurance, and all these kind of things were in order. So that's when I thought, okay, you know, now I, at least I, I prepared for this. And then I decided to actually open up. And at this stage, she has been by my side for uh, about two years when I was going down internally. But she had no idea. On the outside, she thought that I was having a great time. I was always, you know, jolly and happy. And But she didn't see me in the early mornings when I woke up and I was shaky and uh, I was inside myself feeling like I'm breaking down. Of course, she saw when my foot sw got swollen and so on, but that could be in a, a broken foot and ankle and we x-rayed it and all kinds of things. But otherwise, you know, I was so good at covering up that even this woman who just became my wife had no idea what was going on, the pain, the stories and the journey that I went through internally. So just to make it clear, were you living together? Yes, at this stage we were living together. And she still didn't see what what was going on with you? No, and, and also all my friends, uh, they were sharing on me. They said that they thought that I lived the best time of my life uh, because I normally was not so outgoing. I wasn't normally out partying so much, but because we had just met and we were a new couple, we were going out a lot and we were partying, having a great time and so on so it looked like we were having a fantastic time and, and similar like my friend uh, uh, simon who died of suicide just a year later he also had just shared on his social media that he was you know having the best time of his life and in a good relationship and all these kind of things so it just seems like uh, it has nothing to do with that it, it, it's something else you also write in your book that you were thinking or you believed, truly believed that you were dying, but at the same time, you were not suicidal, right? You didn't have those thoughts of jumping in front of the train or off a, a bridge. Um, can you address that a bit? Uh, was it, yeah, did you not contemplate suicide at all where you just thought, okay, all these actions mean that I'm dying anyways? Yeah, just because I, I couldn't break from alcohol. That was the problem at that stage. So medication in, in general, I needed something to calm down. 
and that was the hopeless place, you know. But it was only a, a window in the morning when it was like that, uh, when it was really, really bad, and then it got better and better throughout the day. And I could have moments of feeling pretty good there. But it's that again, that roller coaster, you know, and being up and down and, and depression, and then the anxiety and the worries came and. But it could, with alcohol, then the nerves were calm, and I could deliver and, and do a normal job. I was working all the way through this. I didn't even have one sick day. What do you think made the morning so tough or the toughest? I think it's alcohol and, and, and the medication, drugs and so on, you know, the day after the, when you, the body needs it, right? That's the scary thing with addictions. So the, that was the withdrawal that really was... Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. You're living with this in this new relationship with a person and you are managing to put this facade, you you call it a smiling depression, right? So well that not your friends, not even your wife are figuring out that you're just preparing for death. How on earth do you turn that around? Yeah, so the, the savior here was that I told her and it was also that she was jumping into action and actually mm-hmm. uh, there was two things she did yeah, one was as I mentioned we went to check uh, blood tests and so on and seeing doctors and getting support and help but also she knew someone and we had a common friend who'd gone through something similar a few years earlier and uh, she took me for a walk one Sunday and we went to visit this person and she linked me up and gave me phone numbers of people who also had gone through it. So I started to get connections then of people who gone through it. And with that, sort of, as they say, you know, a problem share is a problem halved. And for every person I met and started just to open up, they said, you know, oh, that's no worries. I was going through something similar seven years ago. Let's just meet up and let's talk through this. I will help you. Don't worry, this will get over. So as I started to hear these people, you know, who gone through it and I saw where they were at, then I started to have some small hope and I, then made a promise to myself that, you know, I, I will go through this. I will seek help. And all it really took was uh, getting to a hospital, getting some medication, a couple of injections. And and uh, that was the 5th of May 2018. And I haven't had a drink since, since then. And then. Since I came out, went into that hospital, getting medication I needed for this, uh, I, I have not needed a drink, thank God. You, you're talking about the sharing, right? The, that that really helped you seeing that people can get through and live years after that. Do you ever have trust issues to people with whom you're talking, given how well you were hiding your real state and how you felt and uh, the facade that looked successful and uh, to people who were close to you, you, they thought that you were living your best life. When you hear those stories, what makes you truly believe that that's the case and, and you can heal and, and get the hope and the belief that you can really get over it and live differently and not just build another facade and be even better at that. Most of my friends these days are in recovery and gone through similar journeys or they are um, through my athletic journey now where I'm training. And because I've been an open book, most have read my book and know that I'm speaking on this every day. So therefore, most of them have been extremely open with me. So I know exactly where I had them. I don't keep close contact with many of my friends from before. And there's only a few of them who have decided to open up. And because when, naturally, if someone reads my book and 
they don't say anything to me or write to me, then, then they're obviously not ready or comfortable to share about anything. But of course, if you someone read that and they know me, they will reach out and ask, can we meet for a coffee? Let's talk about that. And then they will feel that it's their time to say, share something, right? And then you build that real natural connection. And, and honestly, Anna, I'm not interested in, in any shallow relationships or connections. I have so many great friends now that I, I don't need anyone else than that. If people are not authentic and really deep, then that's not for me. There could be, though, people who like with whom the book has resonated, but they just haven't had their rock bottom yet. Do you see a potential of if, if when people do get to that place and they get mature enough and ready enough to start going back to the surface that you can get back closer uh, and uh, reconnect and things like that? Yeah, sure. There was one person who I know, not a close friend, but a friend who read my book two years ago. And actually he booked a call with me last week and he decided to share a little bit what he was going through. So that took him two years. And he was not going through something very difficult. It sounded like for now, but he had re- he needed two years to reflect and two years to just dare to mention it. So it, it might not be for everybody, but on the other hand, I've had other people who read my book, including one gentleman who even mentioned in the job interview. I interviewed him for a job and he mentioned and even showed scars of two suicide attempts. I hired a guy and he's still with me today. And we have a wonderful relationship. So you can imagine if that's how we start a relationship in a job interview and by being so open, he had read my book before the job interview, which is why he felt comfortable sharing that. And mm. they, I, I, I bet there's not many people you are, you speak to who come into a job interview and, and mention that they've had two suicide attempts and be hired. That almost sounds like you believe that we all have something dark that we have been hiding and that we have to share and we have to open up with? Is that what you, you think? I don't think we have uh, as, as dark sides as that, everyone, but uh, we certainly have uh, a lot of challenges. Many people are going through that in life and there's a lot of loss and uh, many people perhaps uh, have death in the family and not even know how to deal with that and don't talk about it. And all that pain will be coming up at some stage. You started, or you, you, you became a certified ICF coach. And that was, I guess, part of your healing journey for yourself, but also part of the mission of helping us, like to have the Reacher Toolbox to help the others. Was it a very natural step for you or did it look, take some trial and error of searching for those tools to, to enrich in your toolbox with? So that was the, the COVID lockdown time and I thought it, it would be, it was sort of on my checklist, you know, ICF certification, one stage, let's do it. And it was just perfect timing when they reached out and said, you can do it online now during the lockdown. So I thought, yeah. So that was really three, four months when the world was uh, you know, going crazy. I was so focused on this and I really, really enjoyed it. And indeed, it helped me go deep inside myself and ask questions to me and others. And, 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 and that inspired me then to write complete my book during that time as well. You say that coaching is, uh, apart from other things, it's also about slowing, going slow. That was surprising for me to read. Can you explain a bit more and elaborate that thought? Yeah, I mean, coaching is about asking powerful and deep questions. And I guess back then in 2020, when I did that little, would I know that we would find ourselves in 2023 
when we have uh, tools like ChatGPT, where it's all about the power of the question and how you answer, ask a question. So I think, you know, it, it should be almost be like you should have an ICF certificate and the better you would be at using all these AI tools because you know mm-hmm. what questions to ask. Interesting. So what, what about the slowing down part or going slow? Well, I think you have to go slow because if you are a coach, it's about asking a few powerful questions and give space and time to the other person to think and to go deep inside themselves and uh, to answer and just keep giving them that space. And again, if you ask a deep enough question, they will need to go slow and they will take time. I agree with you. And I have sometimes clients who are not used uh, to go slow and they do want some quicker results. And there is quite some impatience and frustration there when you you're trying to get them into that depth and they're like no i need to solve it here now and there is this dilemma inner dilemma in them or the fight between the two parts of them because they understand they need to go deeper but it's also uncomfortable and scary and that fear gets them into that pattern of like no i need the results here and now so how do you pace your clients to slow down and to feel like, okay, there is a trust in this process and I'm in it, in it for the long game and so on? Well, I would say that, you know, it's very important to take it step by step. And if people are not ready for that quite yet, then find a different location for it. Maybe uh, maybe they're not used to eye contact. Maybe the setting is too formal. Go for a walk, go for a drive in the car together or just change the setting and and just, teach them to go slower i would say it might not be so easy if it's a formal setting and the first time you meet someone they might just want everything to get over with as soon as possible because they're not comfortable yet yeah it's not about the first meeting but usually with my clients we usually mm. hit that after five six sessions or so uh, when yeah. we've already established some relationship and i i do go deeper because we got to yeah understand that okay these are the symptoms let's go under them and so on and then they they start having this fear and go back to their normal patterns and i i got to like first i was really scared i i I thought i was a bad coach i would be fired right now and whatnot and then i got to understand like yeah they're actually showing me this anger shows me that uh, we we are onto something and we are getting where the the true reason for the problems is lying and then of course you need to be very gentle and respectful and go with the pace and the capacity that the client is uh, can tolerate and handle but uh, that by no means is that the design to change the direction it, it is about the direction you get the, the understand that that's the direction you need to go but maybe be a bit more delicate than ever uh, to be able to get in there Nick, this is right around yeah, I was just going to say, uh, paraphrase it and throw it around in a different way. And what I do also, if I feel that some people get stuck, then perhaps I share a story of what, something similar, what I've gone through. So they feel that they are not, you know, in the spotlight. And that's the beautiful thing with me in recovery. So we, when I'm working with people who are going through similar challenges now, the fact that they know I've gone through it before, that the, the stigma is not there. They feel that the they don't have to be shy about being open about it because they know that they're not alone. Yeah, absolutely. When I you share stories from my own experience, I usually emphasize that, okay, I'm not giving you the, the answer. It's more about for you to understand that I've been there and we all have our own formulas and, and recipes to get out of there, but let's let's look for yours. And I, I give my story or I sometimes throw just different scenarios to them and say like, let's pick 
talk to me about what resonates, what, uh, what rubs you some wrong way and so on, so that we can actually understand what is your way out uh, and through. Thanks for sharing that, Nick. I would like to talk about the five steps that you describe in the book. Of course, they're, they're well described and lay out, laid out with stories for people you know in, in the book itself. So I highly recommend people to go and grab the copy. But just to give a bit of a, like, a taste of that, of flavors, let's talk about the, the five of them. The taking stock, asking for help, getting healthy, nurturing healthy relationships, and finding your purpose. It's a very interesting mix that covers both physical and emotional and uh, spiritual and so on. So uh, how was the, before we go into each of them, how was the process for you to identify these five, Nick? Why that? So it's, it's a summary basically of my sort of first one and a half year in recovery as I was reflecting on it, you know. And there were so many people then who saw how I changed, what happened to me. And most of those people were not people in recovery. It was people outside the, the recovery rooms who saw that it was something that changed me. So when people just kept asking me, what's going on? What's happened to you? They asked, have you found God? What's happening? And that's when I started to think, well, maybe, I'm, maybe I need to write this down. And that's what I did. And I basically started by just writing a basic article starting with a LinkedIn post. And then before I knew it, you know, people want to hear more. And then I was on radio talking about it and then on TV. And then uh, I was asked by uh, the Women Association in Singapore to give a keynote on it. And as for every talk I gave, more and more people were asking me more questions. And therefore, I came up with those five steps. And you probably heard many times that when it's in recovery, they talk about the 12 steps and so on. And I would say 12 steps is probably there. If you have hit rock bottom, you need 12 steps. But the five steps could be for someone who, uh, anyone, it's almost like a housekeeping more than everything, anything. Yeah. So that's basically to the prevention of getting to that rock bottom. Yes. Okay. That might be answering the question you asked uh, before also then. So what should someone do who's perhaps halfway or someone who's a bit off to make sure they don't go as deep? Well, if you go over these five steps, then hopefully you'll be on your right path. And I'm, I'd be happy to talk them through briefly if you like as well. Absolutely. Let's uh, discuss that, how people can actually reach out to you if they do want to talk about those. But uh, let's take one, uh, one of e uh, them uh, each and discuss a bit. Taking stock. What do you mean by this one? So if you imagine that you're a shopkeeper and uh, you have a small shop, I'm sure you would do inventory checks, you know, once a month or once a quarter. Uh, and, and that would be quite normal to do that audit. But how often do we do a stock take or an audit of ourselves, an honest look at ourselves? And that was the first thing you know we were asked to do basically in, in the recovery program because when you come in there you come in with a lot of issues and you're normally given a sponsor so this taking stock you can do either by yourself with a spreadsheet or pen and paper but even better if you have a coach or a mentor or someone who you can talk through it with and it's about you know being honest and in my case it was about i was heavily overweight i had an alcohol addiction my blood works was poor i didn't sleep well I had a lot of relationships who were broken. So I had to write a big list down and I was giving a few weeks to do that. And how did you feel in that process? Did you have directly hope that, oh, now I actually get clarity on what I can start fixing? Or was it dark moment where you just felt, oh, there is so much broken and how did I get there? Was there a lot of criticism to yourself or what was going on? It was extremely painful uh, to go through that one because you also had to write down all the pain you had internally, all the fears. You had to write down also all the resentments you had. 
and uh, you were guided here to go back all the way to your childhood to think through your whole uh, and I remember writing down a list of all the schools, uh, looking up old school for photos and thinking through and writing down the names of people who, when you think was thinking about them, maybe some incident came up and it was perhaps something you said to them or they said to you that was painful. All these parts had to be written down in this inventory. And in my case, I wrote down about 80, 90 things, if I remember right. But I know other people who wrote down 400 items. How do you stay sane in that process? Especially when for some years before you had the alcohol or the medication as your retreat, whenever you got into the discomfort. And here you're going through this several weeks of very painful experience. What were the strategies practically to actually cope with that? Yeah, so in that case, I had a sponsor and it, I would advise anyone to have a coach or a mentor uh, uh, to go through that. And I mean, it, it's a little bit like if you if you go through the wheel of life with your coach, where you identify one of the segments in your life that needs some work and then you focus in that area. And this is just perhaps a bit more thorough and you're going through then every single step of the wheel of life. And and to do it by yourself I, I would have been very challenging. But because I was coming every day to a support meeting in the re- re- recovery program and people then sharing what they had on their list and how they gone through it and, and, and how they felt after when it was completed because it is just the first step when we're writing this down. Yeah, it is a first step and very necessary even though it's so painful. Yes. I also want to touch on the vulnerability. You did talk about that in the book in this uh, first step and how difficult it is for many people to open up and be vulnerable. But usually like, I, that's my experience as well. Whoever says like, yes, now I, I opened up and I see it as a strength and not a weak, weakness. Can we give our listeners a couple of practical examples of how can they actually embrace vulnerability? And uh, you, you do it a bit in the in the book with talking about whom to share with and so on. Can we voice a couple of those steps, the first ones that people can take? Yeah, so when it comes to vulnerability, I think if we're talking about an organization, it has to start from the top. I'm a big believer that the the CEO or the owner or the managing director, wherever it is, if they are not vulnerable, they will set the scene for the whole organization. Then no one else, perhaps below, will have an open culture. So it has to start in the top. They have to walk the talk. But it's same in the family. Uh, if the parents are close and never share about their feelings or what's happening in their life with the children, naturally the children will grow up. And that is perhaps the case of my generation, at least my parents never spoke about how they were feeling and what was going on in their life. So this is something that I had to learn as an adult. So I say that we have to practice vulnerability. I say that it is like a muscle that we have to practice and train. And uh, just like the job interview I mentioned where I had sent the copy of my book to the gentleman before the job interview. So that was by giving him, him a signal that I'm an open guy. You can share anything with me because here is my open book. I'm an open book. So share everything with me. And as I said, he, he picked that moment to open up completely with me. And many, many, many people do that because I've opened up first. So that would be my advice, you know, and, and practice yourself every day and talk about feelings. So my son now, for example, is 14 years of age. So teenager might not want to talk about these things. But for several years now, when we're talking, the, I'm normally sharing a little bit how I'm feeling. And I typically have to write down before I go into a call, you know, think deeply what I've gone through this week. Is it some feelings I can share? 
Um, you know, I'm anxious about this, so I feel about that. Because when I then explained that to him and what I did to overcome it, then I throw the question over to him, how, how are you feeling? How, how was it in school? And because he's getting used to these words and ex- uh, hearing me express myself in those terms, without thinking, he will start talking about his feelings. Yeah, it's so powerful. The, just the exposure and leading, by the way, by our own example. We do the same with our four, four-year-old daughter. We talk about it. How are you feeling? Well, what what has been good in your day and so on? She's, so now normally when we come into her bed to cuddle her before the, uh, she goes to sleep, she asks, like, what did you like about today? And then I usually try to also ask her about, like, okay, did you learn anything new today? Did you do anything that scared you or things, things like that. And of course she's, she's four years old. Her, her world is very simple right now, but she's getting the, the foundation and, and also we're normalizing to discuss those things. And then we can reach enriching the, the feelings as palette if you want and go deeper into the topics, but at least we don't start doing it when it's getting tough for her because she's going through uh, teen uh, like teen crisis and what things like that. So it's very important to do it. But you mentioned that uh, the top-down approach to vulnerability that it's so important to do it on the, the CEO level or MD level. And I I totally agree with you with that. That's why I have chosen to work with the executives in the companies because I truly believe that by working in depth with one person and mind shifting them this way, I really create a change in the whole organization because then it, it it triples down. But if someone is listening to us and they feel like, yeah, but I'm not a CEO in my company, I'm an employee, what would you say there? Do they just sit and wait <laughs> for, for the CEO to change? Maybe send our episode or your book to them as a hint, hint, or what, what could be the step there? I think also we need to have these safe spaces outside our workplace at any level of the organization you need to have according to me both a professional network and a social network your personal network outside so what do i mean with a professional network it might be an association a club or an organization or a mastermind group or peer group related to your workplace where you meet people at your level and there you can practice to be vulnerable and find forms subgroups go for coffees lunches and Make, make some people and you can talk, talk again about feelings, how you feel about your work and so on. Uh, and hopefully they understand you, you get that sympathy there. And then when it comes to the personal relationships, uh, we need to remind ourselves that, you know, it's too easy to hide behind you know, the computer or lock ourselves in the apartment. We need to go out. We need to belong to something. We need to find that local bowling club or the running club or whatever organizations we can join where we go and interact with human beings personally and build real relationships at any age is just mm-hmm. so important. And it gets, gets more difficult the, the older you get because the, com- the uh, networks are established. And that, that's my experience. I moved from Ukraine to Sweden uh, to study at the master level. So I was in my early 20s. And of course, then it's quite easy because everyone is uh, loose, so to say. But then we moved to Iceland with a small, tiny baby. And uh, everyone, like our peers, we were in our early uh, 30s. And then everyone is settled there with their families. And especially in Iceland, people uh, stick to their home places. So they still hang out with people with whom they went to the daycare. And it's difficult to penetrate that social circle. And then inevitably you end up with other experts or internationals. 
And then inevitably, some of them just leave at some point and you have to start all over again. And that, that has been a huge challenge for, for us. So I just want to acknowledge that, that it is difficult, but I do agree with you, Nick, that it's so important and it's really crucial for our health uh, on all aspects of it for uh, to, to just really, truly be happy and sustainable with our lives. Yeah. If we go to the second step, asking for help, I'm pretty sure that some people just cringed when they heard those three words. <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty linked to what we just talked about, vulnerability, right? That's what it's all about. It's uh, Once I had that list, it's about uh, setting it into action, you know, okay. getting going to ask people. And that's what I did also. I had to go to the doctor and, and, and face that. And with my health and so on, I had to also... Uh, sign up for the, the people who could help me to make things right and so that's what it's about and people are very very scared indeed to ask for help and i have a friend of mine an author in london called andy lopata who wrote the book on that and if, if anyone is uh, struggling with that step asking for help i can recommend uh, his book it's a wonderful book yeah with step-by-step approach and uh, the natural thing with humans is that we want to help. It's just that we are scared to ask around for help. And that's uh, something that uh, one of my guests um, said here on the podcast, that by not accepting help or by not asking for help from people around you, you're robbing them of the joy to help. And it's so important to think about it. And uh, what helps me sometimes when I go into those trenches of being in a stressful life of building a business of my own and so on. And I literally don't think about like, okay, whom can I ask for help? But I have been training myself. Okay, if X, my person, uh, like my, my friend would be in this situation, how would I feel to get to know about it post factum? A bit like what happened to you and Simon, right? Your your friend with about whom you're writing in the book who committed suicide and he was a cheerful person and everyone knew him as a happy uh, person living his best life. And then suddenly, not suddenly, but he ends his life, right? It was sudden for everyone else, but I'm pretty sure it was not for Simon. And thinking about that, turning it that way around, I'm like, heck, I do need to ask for help now for this. Like, just, I don't know. Come and do my dishes because I'm overwhelmed and it just gets me spinning into the uh, dark place or whatever it is. So think about it. Like, don't rob people who you care about uh, of this joy to to help you and to be there with you in in, in all the stages of life. It's so so important. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I guess it ties a bit with uh, number four, the nurturing healthy relationships. But before we start going over uh, to that one, let's go into the getting healthy part. You outlined the the foundational things which I always talk about like a broken record as well with the sleep and movement and sports and nutrition some mindfulness practice or something to help our mental health I want to get into the topic of training since you you are training a lot right you're doing the triathlons with Ironmans and and things like that and I couldn't stop thinking that when you went from like addiction of alcohol now into the health how do you know that you're not substituting one addiction with another? And how do you keep yourself in check that that's still healthy for you instead of starting to damage you? Can you give us a bit of thought there? Yeah, and it's, a, again, a very fine line. And I think, you know, if you have an addictive personality, then there will always be something that you fall for. Uh, so what I'm trying to do these days is to make sure that I rather get addicted to healthy things like i'm quite fanatic about my vegan diet at the moment for example and uh, yes with exercise but i've basically 
what I'd done is I handed over my training plan to a coach. And I did that already since when I started my recovery five years ago. Uh, I then asked the coach to get me healthy. And with the wearable devices and with apps, he just gave the plan. Because if I will be in charge of my plan, then maybe I overtrain and I do uh, something which I shouldn't do. Uh, so like now also, I've been with the current coach for two years. And every Sunday, he updates the program and I just follow it. So in that sense, it keeps me in shape and uh, I shouldn't do too much or too little. Yes, I'm training for uh, Ironman, that sport, which in some people's eyes might be extreme. Uh, for me, I, I find it... Uh, I find it, and I read a lot of books around this also, that, you know, perhaps we, uh, at least uh, if we go back in some generations, we were perhaps out moving ourselves around two, three, four hours a day, you know, picking berries or whatever, hunting or whatever it was. So if I'm moving three hours a day training, uh, maybe uh, running, cycling or swimming, which the sports are not super heavy. Uh, most of it is, or 80% of it is very light uh, in low heart rate. Then it's just like perhaps our forefathers did. So in that sense, I believe it's better to move around outdoor, being in the nature three hours a day than sitting locked in. But I think if, if I would replace that with, you know, being in a gym locked in three hours a day, being fanatic about special enhancements and so on, and, and then, then maybe I would become addicted. But the fact that I'm connected with other people in the nature, moving around, that makes me feel good. Yeah, um, I, I appreciate that uh, sh you're sharing that. Uh, I think it's a brilliant step to really entrust a coach uh, in that matter as the uh, this reality check <laughs> or sanity check, whether you are going overboard or not. And I think it's so important for us when we do have some tendencies to go overboard. And if you don't have the... Uh, luxury of uh, hiring a coach, maybe it can be some peer group of enthusiasts who really just doing it as a, a willpower, like a, as a volunteer thing with each other and uh, just staying at that level. I think it's so important for us. Thanks, Nick. So I know that we are running out of time and uh, we did cover some things in the first two steps about the uh, nurturing healthy relationships. The fourth step, is there anything you would like to mention there that uh, you think it's very important to leave people with? Yes, I think so, because in the first step, when you wrote down the people perhaps you had harmed or the people when you think about this pain coming up, we need to fix that. So that's what it's about in the fourth step. And uh, it's about going back and making amends to the people where you will not harm them. But in my instance, there was some people, some incidents that had happened a few years earlier. I had one incident, for example, with my sister, which I mentioned in the book as well, where uh, I stormed off the lunch table one time because she gave a Coca-Cola to my son and I didn't think he should drink it. He was only five years of age. Uh, I didn't say anything. I just grabbed my son and ran away, basically. And then I didn't talk to my sister for a year or two years. You know, And the, the relationship basically froze over such a small, silly incident. And at this stage, then, it was time for me to go back and make peace. You know, I went back to her and I said, that was shyly so me. I'm sorry about that. And in her instance, she couldn't even remember the incident. She just wondered why I had not contacted her for so long, what was wrong, you know. So she also felt relieved. And immediately our relationship was fixed. And I went through 20, 30 different incidents like that with other people. And it was just wonderful. When I come back to my hometown now, I meet some of my high school friends and so on. Those relationships have gone cold. They've now been repaired. And it's almost like you're back in the days again, you know, and, and 
So every person I think about in my life now, I have a positive feeling. In your experience, from your own experience, or people with whom you have, for whom you have been a, a support or a sponsor, does it always work to fix the relationship, or do we need to be prepared so that sometimes some relationships will not be fixed? And what do we do if that is the case? So it's all about just cleaning your side of the street. You can only apologize and make amends and say that you're on a path to become a better person. And you're sorry about what you said. You don't bother discussing what they did. That's not relevant here. It's about you cleaning your conscience and again, your side of the street so you can walk for, uh, move forward. So if you go back and make amends to 10 people, maybe seven or eight will be over the moon and very joyful and maybe one will become your best friend again. Maybe one or two, it will not go down so well, but that's why you have to be careful. Don't go back. If if they if one of your ex-boyfriends have remarried or something and you destroy and break in your relationship, that's not the point of this because that would be very selfish. <laughs> so you have mm. to be careful also and use common sense. That's important. Uh, if we quickly go into the finding your purpose, that could be, a, of course, a, an interview or a podcast of itself. But I wanted to tap into the gratitude and the journaling, because those are the two things that I think a lot of uh, people in my circle, my clients have like struggles with. So let's talk about gratitude. What is it for you? Is it a feeling? Is it an intellectual thing? What is that? Well, I think in recovery program, gratitude becomes an action point. It's something that you have to do in one of the steps. Uh, you have to daily, the first time in the uh, first in the day, send a list of your your uh, your gratitude list to your sponsor. So that just programs your mind. You know, set you up after you've done your daily prayer, you've done your meditation, you're in a good space. Then you write down your gratitude list and you send that daily. So I belong to different su support groups where. Some groups, maybe five or ten people uh, together say, okay, we send it every day to make sure that you remind each other to send it. And then you open your phone in the morning, you see, oh, there's four or five gratitude lists. This immediately put you in, in the right state of mind. So that's a big part of recovery. But that you don't have to, again, hit rock bottom to write the gratitude list. And I'm using it a lot in my uh, coaching and relationships with people around me. And it's just a good thing to do, just to keep saying what we're grateful for. So when you say that it's an action and you say those things that you're grateful for, again, is it why I'm asking about this intellectual or emotional thing is because quite a lot of uh, my clients, they are high performers. They are men who are like really ready to like rock the world and so on. And when I talk to them, like, okay, let's talk about gratitude. They're like, I don't feel anything. And they like in their world, when you feel gratitude or when you are grateful, it's like the skies are opening and the angels are coming down and singing on your shoulders or something like this. What is happening with you when you're going through your gratitude list? Well, I think also because the meetings, I mean, I'm still in recovery meetings and so on. And sometimes you always start the circle by everyone sharing something they're grateful for. That's a normal start. But we have even included that in our business meetings now. So when we run our peer groups in Singapore, uh, for for business people, sometimes we we share that everyone start by sharing what they're grateful for. It's a bit like what we discussed before. It's about like being vulnerable. It's something you practice, and if you then start practice your feelings and go inside yourself, and if you slow down, then the gratitude will be there, and you will feel it, and you will express it, and you will live it more. And so I think again, it's it's something that perhaps might not come instantly but it can be practiced and it can be improved where is it for you and what is it is it living in your body anywhere 
I think yes, it's it's definitely inside, and it comes for me. I, I start to feel these things in the morning. I'm normally in bed in decent time. I'm up early, and I normally go out exercising in the dark, which means I'm experiencing the sunrise. Being outdoor in the sunrise for me is something that's normally when I feel the biggest gratitude, and that's a moment of the day that I never want to miss. I know that we're the bottom of the hour, so I would love to continue talking to you, but I'm pretty sure we'll make more space and occasions to do so, Nick, and Nick, and that we'll find some ways of supporting each other and each other's causes. I would like to wrap up with asking what one tiny actionable step a person listening to us can do today to start their journey to get out of this executive loneliness. Well, I think uh, the the one thing they can do is if there's something on anyone's mind, uh, write it down and think about who you can talk to about this. And it can be a colleague, a friend, or it can be a support group or go into the search engine. Otherwise, whatever problem it is you have and, and search for it. There's so many volunteers and so many support groups out there uh, that you will be surprised. And people have gone through what you're going through before. So don't be shy to reach out and you can have even anonymous calls and anonymous support meetings online. So just find out for yourself and yeah, I promise you will feel a lot better. That's that's what I would like to convey. Never stay alone in the darkness. That's what I always say. And uh, uh, this is the message that you're trying to bring to the world as well, Nick. Thank you so much for your time, for your sharing, for everything you do in the world. I uh, do believe that this is a very important mission that you're having and the purpose and uh, that you are leaving the, the world better every day uh, you live uh, live through your purpose so thank you so much for that thank you Anna for having me on your show and to Eugenie's leaders I really want to remind you that I see you I feel you and please feel this love and reach out if you do need any help or support see you next week Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Genius Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, hit the subscribe button. Please rate, review, and share to help more people discover the show and become the better leaders. For more conversations about living in your zone of genius, connect with me on LinkedIn. Genius Leadership is an honors conversation about leading yourself and others. And it is my honor to be a guide in overcoming everything.